Good evening. How are you? Doing well, I hope? Amen. You can turn with me in your Bibles to the Song of Songs, also referred to as Song of Solomon, in chapter 6, where we left off last week. We're in chapter 6. And as a little bit of a recap, we saw in chapter 5 that this couple in this Eastern love poem, The Bridegroom and the Bride, have had their first problem. They're recently married. They've had this, this problem, and it really, we, we kind of dissected the problem last week, but it came down to indifference and ingratitude on the part of the bride. She was somewhat indifferent towards his feelings, or toward his feelings toward her, uh, and she also became a little ungrateful for the many blessings. And we saw in that a picture of us and our relationship with God and how often we are indifferent or ungrateful, and we really shouldn't be. But uh, in this poem, which symbolizes in many ways our relationship with Christ as the church, it also speaks of an actual couple and the problems that they faced and the way that they resolved those problems. And I think more than anything else in chapter 6, it's the resolution and the reunion of this couple after they work through their issues. And so we pick it up in chapter 6, verse 1, and we're going to see what forgiveness looks like. Forgiveness, and of course, we'll talk some about this in our relationship with Christ. Forgiveness is everything. It changes hearts. It changes lives. It changes minds. It changes relationships. It repairs and restores relationships when forgiveness is extended and accepted, as we'll see. But let's open in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus, asking that you would help us. As we study your word, that you would help us to be the kind of people that bless you by our actions, by our thoughts, by our words, and by our deeds. Lord, for those of us in romantic relationships, those of us who are married or may be getting married soon, uh, or maybe have been married for a long time, Lord, may you give us an understanding of forgiveness, an understanding of reestablishing relationships in every area of our lives this evening, but especially in the area of our relationship with you. And so, Lord, as we study, speak to our hearts. From your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A successful marriage depends entirely upon the couple's ability to forgive and accept forgiveness. It is just that simple. Without the ability to forgive and the ability to accept or receive forgiveness, a relationship will surely fail. What we see here is that without both of these things, a broken relationship continues to remain broken. Now, we can apply this to every area of our lives. Maybe you've had a falling out with someone. You know, one of the things, I was thinking about this just today, one of the things that really troubles me in my heart, and it's just me, uh, I try to be a good friend, I try to be a good coworker. I try, over the years, I've, I've tried to connect with people as best I can, regardless of whether they're spiritually saved or they know Christ, or even if they're interested in the things of the Lord. But you know, I've noticed something, and maybe you've seen this, I've seen this with some family members, but I've especially seen it with coworkers and friends over the years. And I've seen that sometimes people just cut you off. Has that ever been experienced by anyone? No explanation. They just don't return your emails. They, I guess they call that ghosting now, you know. Um, you know, they ghost you. You're just like, what happened? I was thinking about a friend I had many years ago before I got married, how we were so tight. And then he just 
like dropped off the radar. And this was before you could hunt someone down with Google. Uh, but, you know, even so, it's been such a long time. And, you know, I thought to myself, well, that's not the first or the only time that's happened to me. And, uh, you know, sometimes I think, did I do something? Did I say something? Uh, was I, you know, was I a difficult person to be around? Is it me? How many times have we asked that question? You know, is it me? And uh, sometimes it's, it's really the Lord in you. Especially if the person doesn't know Christ, they don't want to hear it, see it, or know about it. And so you get thrown out of their lives with the Lord because they're kind of rejecting him. And so they reject you. This happened more than a few times. And sometimes it's because people don't want to, you know, be transparent. They don't want you to know what's going on in their lives. Sometimes they are mad at you about something and they won't tell you that. If you're ever mad at me, do me a favor, blast me. Because I'm the kind of guy that can take it. I would rather you come up to me, you know, and say, you know, Pastor, I stopped coming to church because the other day you said something in the service. I'd rather hear that than find out four years later that you left the church because I said something or did something or was insensitive. I guarantee in life there's going to be times where each and every one of us, myself included, and because you hear me talk a lot, I'm sure there are going to be moments where I say something that rubs you the wrong way. I would rather you come to me and say something about it so we can restore the relationship, so I can apologize, basically. But, you know, there are those people that just sort of disappear, and you wonder what happened to them. Good friends I've known for decades and just can't connect with them anymore. They don't return your emails. You start to get a little bit of a complex. Does everybody hate me? What, you know, <laughs> what's going on? In order for a relationship that's broken, and in some cases those relationships aren't broken, but when a relationship is broken, the only way that's going to be resolved, restored, is if there's communication, right? So you have to communicate. If the, if the person ghosts you, you stand no chance of asking for forgiveness, receiving forgiveness, extending forgiveness. It can't happen. There has to be communication. You know, the, the blessed relationship of marriage uh, must be established and sustained in grace. All relationships must be established and sustained in God's grace so that when someone messes up or says the wrong thing, there's an opportunity to be forgiven, to extend forgiveness, to receive forgiveness. No communication, the relationship stops. And it's sad, it really is, that over the years, uh, there are people that I just, I don't even know what happened to them, you know? And I hope that it's not me. Sometimes I guess it is, but maybe not. And you wonder, but you're not given the opportunity to restore the relationship. So in this relationship, that's the first thing we see. There's, there's a reunion, and in that reunion, it, it allows the relationship to be healed. Without that reunion, there would be no healing, right? And the first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 6 is the daughters of Jerusalem, the, the chorus in this love poem, in this play, if you will, uh, they cry out, and they cry out to the bride. And I'll remind you that, you know, he had desire to be amorous with her, and she seemed to reject his advances. They were married, and uh, then he left, and she sought him, couldn't find him, and as we saw last week, she, she went about the city trying to find him and was unsuccessful and cried out to the daughters of Jerusalem and asked for them to sort of tell her where. She asked them, where is he? Where is my beloved? If you see him, tell him I'm faint with love. And so we pick it up now, and we see in verse 1, 
Where is your beloved gone, the daughters of Jerusalem say to the bride? Where is your beloved gone? O fairest among women, where is your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? So the, the women of the court wanted to know where her lover had gone. And as a reminder, I'm using a translation by Dr. S. Craig Glickman, very similar to the NIV and somewhat to the ESV, but it will be up on the screen so you can follow along. Uh, but they're, they're looking to, to know where had her lover gone? Where had the bridegroom disappeared to? Just a little note there. Isn't it interesting that that really kind of describes our relationship with God now? We're separated for a time. We're looking for that moment when he comes again, you know? But there is that time where we're, we're desperately seeking and wanting the Lord to return, amen? To come to the earth and change things here and fix everything on this planet. But anyway, the women of the court wanted to know, where was he? And their question prompts her to actually remember the place that he surely must be. Verses 2 through 3, the bride says to the daughters of Jerusalem, she apparently realizes where he probably is, my beloved is gone to his garden, to beds of balsam, to pasture his flock among the gardens, and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine, the one who pastures his flock among the lilies. Now, lilies are a symbol in the Bible of love and other things, but they're mentioned frequently uh, within the scripture, and especially in this love poem, the Song of Songs. So she recognized that this would be a place where they could be alone. So when he walked away from the door and realized that she wasn't interested in in spending time with him at that particular moment, he went to a place where he could be alone. But he also realized a place that when she came to reunite with with him, they could be alone. Uh, She knows that they belong to one another, even though they're separated. And again, what a beautiful picture of Christ. We know we belong to him even though we're separated. It's a picture that we are all too familiar with. We belong to Christ. Well, where is Christ? Well, Christ is in heaven. We're waiting for him to return from heaven to earth. But we know, we can say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. We can say that we belong to Christ and Christ to us. And again, a beautiful picture. That verse has been used many times to describe our relationship with Christ. But here it describes, of course, first and foremost, the bride speaking to the daughters of Jerusalem about the bridegroom. She knew they belonged together. Even though they weren't together, they belonged together. And they belonged to one another. And she remembers his shepherd-like character, that he was patient, he was gentle, he was meek. His patience actually paved the road to reunion. Patience, patience, patience is so important when restoring relationships. His patient silence prepared her heart to receive his forgiveness. She was in need of forgiveness, But he needed to extend forgiveness. He needed to be given the opportunity. But he was silent. He was patient, waiting for the opportunity to extend forgiveness so that her heart could receive forgiveness. You know, sometimes it takes time, you know, for a relationship to be restored. We can't be in a rush. People need to process their feelings, their emotions. They need to think through what happened, come to a conclusion about what was said or not said or done or not done. And it's important to give it time. Now, she may have doubted him. She may have even wondered if he was angry with her. Uh, Did he now regret marrying her, you know, because of that incident? Uh, Did he possibly wish that he had married one of the girls in the palace instead of her? You know, we get get insecure when a relationship uh, 
has failed or someone ghosts you, as I already shared, it's very easy to get insecure and start to think, I, I, I must have said something, I must have done something wrong, or I know I did, and that person doesn't want to be bothered with me anymore. In a romantic relationship, that can be devastating. And clearly, that would be the case, except in verse 4. We pick it up there. The king speaks. So they are now reunited. And the reunion takes place in this way. They reunite, and he begins by complimenting her. Complimenting her. You know, I know people who are so encouraging. Like, when you go up to them and you say, how are you doing? Everything that comes out of their mouth, it's to encourage you in the faith or encourage you just in general. So encouraging. And you you long to be around people like that, right? Uh, It is actually a gift of the Spirit, the gift of encouragement. But I know people that have the gift of discouragement, I'm joking, of course, but yeah, no, I know people that when you talk to them, you get bummed out, right? You see them coming, and you're like, (gasps) and you run the other way, or maybe it's just me. You see them, you're like, oh, no. I always like to use this term. You remember from the 100-acre wood, you remember Eeyore? Remember? Always something like that you don't want to hear, very, very depressing, like discouraging, Oh, well, yeah, the Debbie Downer, you know, the person, it's like, you you say, oh, it wasn't it a beautiful day? Yeah, but it's going to be windy. (laughs) Oh, thank God it's not snowing. Yeah, but it's raining, you know. The glass is always half empty, and I don't like to be around people like that. Maybe you do, but I don't. Uh, Sometimes as a pastor, as a minister, as a Christian, we are called to be involved in those types of people's lives, and it can be very discouraging. There's times when I've gone to the hospital, to visit somebody, and they've encouraged me. You know, have you ever experienced it? You go there, and you walk in, and you're like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be horrible. You know, this person is injured. They were in a car accident. They're sick. They're dying, and they encourage you. Or you visit someone who's infirmed, you know, shut in, and you think, oh, man, you know, what a bummer. This is so depressing. You walk in, and you might stay an hour, but that hour is so encouraging. You know, I remind you, just because of your circumstances, it doesn't mean you can't be an encouragement. There's always an opportunity to be encouraging. Some people don't take those opportunities. I would encourage you to do so. Here's what happens in the couple's lives. They finally reunite, and instead of there being some detente, some, you know, discouraging words shared, impatient things, well, I'm glad you finally showed up, you know, guilt, uh, whatever, just, just insensitivity. No, no, he, he assures her that his feelings haven't changed. So I want you to think about it. The next time you reunite with someone, it doesn't have to be your spouse or a romantic relationship, family member, someone connects with you you haven't seen for a while, start by being encouraging. Now that usually helps pave the way to reunion. So here's what we read, picking it up in verse 4. We'll read from verses 4 to verse 9. Fair you are, my darling, as Tisra, lovely as Jerusalem, awe-inspiring as bannered hosts. And then he says to her, Turn your eyes for me, for they arouse me. Your hair is like a flock of goats which descend from Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of young lambs which have come up from the washing, all of them which are paired and not one of them uh, alone. Not one among them is alone. Your temples are like a slice of a pomegranate behind your veil. There are 60 queens and 80 concubines and maidens without number, but unique is she, my dove, my perfect one. Unique is she to her mother, pure is she to the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed, the queens and concubines, 
praised her. Just stop there for a minute. This may sound familiar to you. Uh, In fact, it's verbatim the very praises he shared with her on their honeymoon. So think about that. He's reminding her of the first time they were together intimately. He's also reminding her of how he feels. He's reminding her of that moment when they came together and repeating the things he said to her then. And so you see what he's doing, right? Bringing her, encouraging her, bringing her to a place of assurance. He assures her that her feel, his feelings haven't changed. Now, she was as fair as a quaint village, Tizra. Yet she was as lovely as the capital city of Jerusalem. She was as breathtaking as an army on the battlefield. And that's, that's essentially what he starts to say here, is awe-inspiring as bannered hosts. You know, some of, some of what she, he's sharing here, he, he shared, again, on their honeymoon. Some of it is a little different. It's expounded upon. But he is not just trying to arouse her physically either. So what he's making clear is his motive for being kind, patient, and encouraging isn't selfish in any way. It's not an attempt to be intimate. It is simply how he feels. So he says it this way in verse uh, 5, turn your eyes from me for they arouse me. The idea is that that's not where his mind or his head is at at this point. He's just wanting to restore the relationship. Uh, You know, he praises her again, just like he did on their wedding night. When he says, "Uh, your hair is like a flock of goats, which descend from Gilead. Speaking of the long flowing nature of her hair, uh, her teeth, her smile, uh, she had a beautiful smile, her face, that is her temples, a beautiful face, a beautiful complexion. And then he talks about her being above all other women in the palace. And so he's praising her, communicating to her that she is still the girl he married. He still has the same feelings for her. But he doesn't include any of the praise that was sensual or sexual in nature that he shared on their wedding night. He stays away from that. He simply is sharing his feelings without any ulterior motive. He's purposely avoiding physically arousing her until they can properly unite, until they can connect uh, and, and restore the relationship. He doesn't want to be misunderstood as only being interested in her physically. Uh, A couple of things to think about as far as the sexual relationship. Sex is the expression of love. It's not the inspiration of love. A lot of people today have a very different mindset about sexual uh, involvement, sexual relationships. They think that it is the inspiration for love. No, it is the expression of love. The love is expressed sexually, not the sex inspires love. And today, it's so sad. It really is in our culture because people don't think anything of getting sexually involved very quickly early on in the relationship before marriage. We've talked a lot about this when we looked in chapters 1 through 3 at this couple's courtship. She adjured the daughters of Jerusalem not to awaken or to arouse love until it pleases. That is to wait until you're married, until you're in a committed relationship so that you can express and, and experience intimacy the way God intended, without guilt, without shame, with commitment as the foundation for that behavior, for that expression of love and intimacy. So that is so important. Uh, he doesn't want to be misunderstood. A selfish lover will suddenly extend kindness after a fight or late in the evening after a day of strife 
for selfish reasons. And that's not at all what he's doing. He wanted a life partner, not just a sex partner. You know, it's so sad. I hear these terms, you know, friends with benefits, whatever that is. Or, or this idea that, you know, you talk to somebody, say, oh, is that your boyfriend? Is that your girlfriend? Oh, no, it's just somebody I sleep with. You know, I mean, I'm in the world now, right, a lot more, you know, with, with my training and stuff. I'm around worldly people, and I hear some of these things. And I'm, I'm editing it for you. You know, I'm, I'm giving you the, the edited version of what I hear, okay, because I don't want to repeat what they said. But that's the gist of what they say, okay? <laughs> and I think to myself, really? Really, you have such little respect, not just for the other person, but for yourself? That you would speak that way about another human being? That you just use them for sex and for your own enjoyment? That that's how you look at what God designed as a blessing? You look at it as just a selfish experience? Yeah, many people do. This man was not like that. This is not how their relationship was at all. And so he's assuring her that His forgiveness is genuine. It's not just convenient. He's not just wanting to get back together so things can get back to normal without addressing the real issue. So he compliments her more suitably by restoring her confidence in herself. One of the things that happens when we get into a conflict with someone, and I shared a little bit about this before as it relates to uh, people I'm no longer in touch with, uh, we start to question ourselves. We start to look inwardly. We second-guess ourselves. We start to think, well, I mean we lose that confidence that maybe we're not the person we're supposed to be. Maybe we did something wrong. Maybe we said something wrong. Maybe that person is really angry at me. Well, what this communication does is it restores her self-confidence. Not that she didn't perhaps behave in a way that was insensitive, but that that in no way affected or changed their relationship. That's the point here. And so... He tells her she was unique among the women of the palace, unique to him and even to her family. She was highly thought of by the women of the palace, and he did not wish that he had married someone else. All of these things restore her confidence in herself, but also the relationship as a consequence. Now, if ingratitude is the root of half of the problems in marriage, which we talked about last week, pride must be the root of the other half. Pride. That's a person that is either unwilling to extend forgiveness or a person that's unwilling to receive forgiveness. That would be a proud person. Either they can't admit they did something wrong or they're too proud to forgive the person and extend love. Uh, Life is way too short. Let me tell you, in my late 50s, I, I didn't think this way in my 20s, but in my late 50s, I can tell you, life is way too short to hold grudges, to allow relationships to go on and on and on without being resolved and restored, for words that need to be said not to be said, for uh, expressions of affection and love and appreciation. Uh, Those words should be shared sooner than later. And uh, I think we would do a lot better in life if we didn't allow those relationships to remain broken. Clearly, this is a romantic relationship, but that applies to all relationships. So, there was no wounded pride in his heart, as his humility refused to allow it. He refused to act against her in petty revenge by trying to get even, which sometimes people feel they need to do. And this is a strong encouragement for married couples to remain grateful and humble.
Now, let's apply this before we go to the final section here. Uh, Let's realize that this is an apt picture of our relationship with Christ. For the bridegroom hadn't done anything wrong. Now, I'm not saying men don't do things wrong in relationships. I'm saying this relationship that's being pictured for us is a picture of the bridegroom who is Christ and the bride who is the church, that is us. So because of that, he is not the one who needs to be forgiven. He's the one that is forgiving her. So... When we come to Christ and we have failed to be the people that he's called us to be, we can know that if we come to him, he will in no way cast us out. We can know that he will lovingly and patiently extend forgiveness to us, that he will restore the relationship with us. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. we, We don't need to be afraid if perhaps we have failed to be the people we've been called to be, if we've sinned against God, we don't need to be afraid to come and ask for forgiveness, to receive forgiveness. And you shouldn't be thinking, well, maybe this time God won't forgive me, or maybe this time I just pushed it too far, or he's definitely going to judge me, maybe then he'll forgive me. We shouldn't think that way. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And so the bridegroom becomes an apt picture of Christ. And when we fail as his bride to be the people he's called us to be, we can know we can be assured that he will receive us and extend forgiveness to us. Amen? That's a beautiful picture. And again, as I've shared, this is an allegory. The primary application, it is a love poem about two individuals. But the secondary or maybe tertiary application is that it pictures Christ and the church. Okay, so now we get to the last couple of verses here. And this describes their reunion. And uh, we'll get to the full making up, if you will, in the next chapter. But for this evening, the king begins by recounting what the women of the court were saying as they left the garden together in verse 10. He's quoting them when he says, who is this looking forth like the dawn, fair as the moon, pure as the sun, awesome as an army with banners. Now that is the daughters of Jerusalem speaking of this couple. Now, understand, that's what they're saying, so he lets us know what they were saying. Uh, He's repeating to her what we've referred to before in our study as progressive praise. As she drew nearer to them, they utter a progressive praise. This is what Hebrew poetry is all about, and this is an excellent example of what Hebrew poetry does by progressively describing something in a way that's this big, and then it gets bigger, and then it's larger, and then it's grand. It's a progressive praise. And uh, so what we first see is they're described as the first light of dawn in the distance. Notice it says, who is this looking forth like the dawn? And so you have a little bit of light on the horizon. If you've ever been up that early, (laughs) or you stayed up that late, uh, you'll know that when, when dawn arrives, there's just a little bit of light on the horizon. Then What's mentioned next, what they mention is fair as the moon. Now, no, he's really describing her, they're really describing her beauty, but he is with her, and they're being described in this way, the first light of the dawn in the distance, then, to increase it a little bit, the fair light of the moon still within uh, even closer sight. So the moon, the light of the moon, is, which is a greater light than that first appearance of the light on the horizon. And then fair is the moon, uh, but pure is the sun, which is an, an even greater progressive description. Pure and brilliant as the light of the sun. And then 
The final element, the grandest form of praise, is when they say, awesome as an army with banners. And what that's describing in poetic terms is the breathtaking reflection of the sun off of an encampment, an an encamped army. So you have the shields and the spears and the swords, and it's blinding. So the sun is blinding, but then when it reflects off of the the encampment of the army, it's just just the grandest form of praise that can be used. It's it's extremely poetic. It is Hebrew poetry, and I'm pointing that out. This is an excellent example of what Hebrew poetry does. They must have heard their praise as they quickly passed by them on their way home. And so the the king recounts that for us. But then the bride says to herself in soliloquy in verse 11, to the garden of nut trees, I had gone down to see the fresh shoots of the ravine, to see whether the vine had budded or the pomegranates had bloomed. Before I was aware, my soul set me among the chariots of my people, a prince. And that is, again, very poetic. It may not translate into our minds properly because it is Hebrew and it is Hebrew poetry. But what she's doing is she's recounting her reason for going to the garden in the first place. She went to see if she could recapture the spring of their relationship. Their relationship had begun in the spring. And spring is, of course, a symbolic uh, picture of the new cycle of rebirth after a winter of death. That, that is a common theme throughout ancient cultures. Spring is life, winter is death. And so what she has done is she's gone to the place uh, where she might rekindle their love. That, that's really what she's telling us. The bride finds herself in the king's chariot, reunited with her lover, and she's found driving quickly past the women of the court. And Solomon, of course, was famous for his many chariots. And she is once again identified with him, by both position and title. And we read that uh, there in verse 12, before I was aware, my soul set me among the chariots of my people, a prince. Then we get to verse 13. And let me point out that verse 13 uh, in our English Bibles is verse 1 of chapter 7 in your Hebrew Bibles. We don't read Hebrew Bibles typically, but if you had a Jewish scriptures, if you had the, the Torah, the Tanakh, uh, you would see this as verse 1 of chapter 7. We'll, we'll see it here as chapter uh, uh, 6, verse 13, but it's the same verse. Anyway, the women cry, the women of the court cry for her to return as they drive past together, having reunited. And we read, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may gaze upon you. And then the king says to the daughters of Jerusalem, how you gaze upon the Shulamite as at a dance of Mahanaim, or two camps, as the translation there. Now, the women of the court are crying out, and they desire to see her, to observe her. She's been described, you know, again, as the light of the dawn and the fair as the moon, and he almost sounds Shakespearean, doesn't it? Uh, but, you know, it's that poetic way of expressing beauty, and they desire to observe her. By the way, they call her Shulamite here. And uh, I think I was speaking with Carol a couple weeks ago. It, it doesn't, it, she's not necessarily called Shulamite because she's from a place uh, where the Shulamite people live. That's not at all what's being said. This word, Shulamite, is the feminine form of Solomon. So we have names like that, Don, Donna, right? Dennis, Denise. We have names that have a male and a female. 
and, uh, you know, depending on the spelling. And some names, of course, you know, can be either male or female. But there are words like that. And this is the case. This is the feminine form of Solomon. So what they're saying when they say Shulamite is not so much where she's from or who she is, but that she belongs to Solomon. She's Mrs. Solomon. Can I say it that way? (laughs) That's the idea. And uh, she's the object of the king's affection. And the king remarks that they look at her as one might study a dance. In this case, it's a dance of Mahanaim. Now, that's the dance of two camps. I don't know that dance. Maybe you do, but I don't. And it could very well be a dance with partners. Uh, That may be the phrase that's being used. It may be a specific dance, but it's unimportant. Because one thing I've learned, and uh, Michelle and I have uh, taken ballroom dancing, one thing I've learned when it comes to that type of dancing, uh, you have to learn how to dance like that. You don't just wake up one day and say, ah, let me do a foxtrot, you know, and let me do a salsa or merengue. Let, let me just go out there and you can do that. Uh, and I've seen people do that. It's not a pretty sight. Uh, you really, you know, you, you got to kind of learn the steps. And more recently with shows like Dancing with the Stars, you know, and, and, and these type of dance shows, uh, people have become more familiar with partner dancing. Uh, but ballroom dancing is an art form. And, and you know, to, to learn those steps takes time. One of the ways you learn those steps is by watching somebody dance, right? So it's kind of interesting how you gaze upon the Shulamite as at a dance of Mahanaim. Why are they gazing at her? Why are they looking at her? Why are they watching her? Uh, These women were studying this couple's love in order to learn how to love, the way that someone watches someone dance in order to learn how to dance. We'll get to some of that at the end of our study in in a couple weeks in in chapter 8, but that is really one of the wonderful testimonies of a good marriage, that the people who witness and watch a good relationship may actually understand more about relationships than the person who's never seen it acted out. So if someone grew up in a home or in a family where there were very few good relationships, healthy relationships, especially in marriages, it's very hard for them to understand what's involved. So God gives us his word to help us to understand. But if you had the advantage of having parents that you know, loved each other and stayed together, and uh, cared about each other, not perfect, no parents are perfect, but if you had that, then you got to study a relationship the way that someone studies a dance, and there's a pretty good chance that when you get into a relationship, you're going to know the steps. You're going to remember, oh, I remember my dad used to say this to my mom, or my mom used to do this for my dad, and you know, that kind of, it's very helpful, isn't it? Now, maybe you don't have that kind of relationship. You could be an orphan, you may be estranged from your family, but In the church, we have healthy marriages, hopefully, that others can observe and see. And, and, you know, our pastors and our leaders and pastors' wives, we make ourselves available. We we want you to be uh, able to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I remember when we used to do young adults ministry, uh, some of the young people used to say, you know, I'm really glad that you guys don't hold back when you have an argument or a disagreement, you know. We let them see everything so that they understand uh, what a real relationship looks like. And they're, they're appreciative. They see that we can disagree, that, you know, we, we resolve it, that, you know, maybe we get into a little spat. But they see that. They watch it all the way through. We have to be transparent for our children and for others around us. Uh, you know, I know some people in ministry who, you know, they hide everything. And they want to present this perfect image. But in the process, they're not being helpful. They're showing something that isn't true. 
You know, we need to be honest and transparent. Now, there's some things that shouldn't be talked about in front of others, but for the most part, the more we as married couples in healthy relationships exemplify those relationships around our children and in those we're ministering to, the better off they're going to be. They're going to be able to learn by watching us. That's what's being talked about here. Anyway, we get to the end of this chapter, and we learn that his forgiveness of her and her willingness to be forgiven restored their relationship. Her own failure had turned her eyes deeply inward, but he brought them outward to himself. And once she looked to him, her eyes, he turned her eyes back to herself through his eyes of forgiveness. So she saw herself through his eyes. And he still saw her and saw in her the bride that he had married. Now, that is exactly what Christ does for us. When we come to him, we seek to be forgiven. Even if we don't seek to be forgiven, God extends that forgiveness to us. You know that? What did he say from the cross? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. Christ comes to us with a spirit of forgiveness, even if we're not willing to admit we're wrong. You understand that? Now, there needs to be confession of sin, but he still approaches us in love. And we can respond in love by receiving forgiveness, extending it to others. That's what we're supposed to do and how we're supposed to respond. So as it relates to reunion, one of the things I just want to encourage you, someone said this to me a long time ago. It might have been my pastor or one of the other speakers I heard early on, that you can you know, walk a mile down the road away from the Lord, but as soon as you turn around, he's right there. You can go, you know, 72 miles away, if you will, down the road in the wrong direction. But as soon as you turn around to return to the Lord, you don't have to come back 72 miles. He's right there. One of the greatest pictures of this, of course, is the parable of what we call the prodigal son. And it's that moment where, you know, he runs, the father runs to that son and holds him and restores him and calls him his son. And so if if there's anything I can leave you with this evening as it relates to our relationship with Christ and how this love poem not only speaks of romantic love, but the love we have with Christ, is that the forgiveness is instantaneous. The reunion, it, it just happens as soon as you want it to. So maybe you feel a million miles away from the Lord. That's on you. You just need to turn around the word for repentance to change direction, change of mind, change of heart. And even if you, you don't belong to Christ, even if, even if you haven't given your life to Christ, you can do so and immediately have that type of relationship with him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and all that it teaches us. We are so grateful for the lessons. And thank you, Lord, for loving us so well. Thank you for this picture of love, uh, which is excellent and it's it's an ideal romance but it's it shows us everything we need to know about how to be good spouses uh but it also tells us how to be good children and how to be your bride and how to live for you so continue to teach us and bless us we pray in jesus name amen